Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with concerns that not enough attention is being paid to exploring ways to end the war in Ukraine, as the focus appears to be more on helping Ukraine win and driving Russia out of the country it had tried to conquer and occupy. Joining us to discuss what kind of compromises might be possible to avoid escalation and a lengthy war is Charles Kupchin, a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, who was director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as special assistant to President Obama for national security. He's the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. We will discuss his article at The Atlantic, Ukraine's Way Out, Strategic Prudence Argues in Favor of Pocketing Successes Rather Than Pressing the Fight and Running the Tantamount Risks. Then we'll examine the results of yesterday's primary races in the key state of Pennsylvania, which has an open Senate seat the Democrats hope to pick up in November. Joining us to discuss how candidates Trump endorsed did compared to others who tried to outmaga Trump is Dr. Terry Madonna, a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University, who has written extensively about voters and voting behavior and founded the Keystone Poll in 1992, the oldest survey produced exclusively in Pennsylvania and was the pollster for the Philadelphia Daily News. Then finally, we'll explore further how the Republican Party is in a competition with itself over which candidate is the furthest out on the MAGA fringe in Donald Trump's GOP and speak with Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Justice Department from 1990 to 1992. A contributing writer at The Guardian, we will discuss his latest article, The Republican Primaries Are a Tug-of-War Between Right-Wing and Even Right-Wing. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Charles Kupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration and is now a Professor of International Affairs in Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And he spent the last three years of the Obama administration as a Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security and is the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order, and How Enemies Became Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. And he has an article at The Atlantic, Ukraine's Way Out, Strategic Prudence Argues in Favor of Pocketing Successes Rather Than Pressing the Fight and Running the Tantamount Risks. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Kupchin. Good to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And do you feel that, as some analysts have argued, that the only thing that Putin understands is force, that, you know, the old expression, that that's the only thing that bullies understand? I know the leaders of the Baltic states made those comments in conjunction with this NATO exercise going on now in the Baltics. So is that a fair summary, or do you see Putin, in spite of what clearly has been a major miscalculation on his part. And I'm sure he's not quite sure how to get out of this mess. Do you consider him rational and pragmatic enough to accept his losses? If, you know, we had this, have we had this conversation a few months ago? I would have said, yes, uh, Putin is someone who is tough and aggressive and expansionist and mean. But in the end of the day, is a rational, calculating actor who takes risks, but low risks that generally entail low costs. 
he takes small bites, Abkhazia, South Ossetia in Georgia, Crimea and Donbass in Ukraine. Uh, I'm not so sure that I can say that anymore because he tried to swallow a porcupine. He tried to take over eastern Ukraine, if not all of Ukraine, and that suggests a level of recklessness that wasn't there before. That having been said, this is not a war that has gone well. The Russian military is reeling. Its economy is getting devastated. Uh, Ukraine has said unequivocally, we want nothing to do with your sphere of influence. Uh, Putin is isolated diplomatically, and he faces at home a level of discontent and pushback that he's never seen before, including from elite Russians that are part uh, of the system. So, yeah, I think that that Putin is someone with whom one can uh, engage in uh, cost, benefit, incentives and inducements. That's one of the reasons I think this is a good time to begin to have a conversation with both Ukraine and eventually with Russia about how to end this war before it spins out of control. And, you know, I bring to the table, Ian, a view that this is arguably the most dangerous moment since the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe more dangerous because there's a hot war going on. Missiles are flying and bombs are dropping. Uh, we don't know what would happen if we pushed Putin's back further up against the wall. So yeah, it's great that Ukraine has had such success pushing back against Russia, but let's end this sooner rather than later. But how would you get Zelensky to agree to any kind of deal? Because wouldn't he, his own people not agree to it? I know he, he always wanted to be a peacemaker, and he, saw, and he got elected on that platform. So I think his instincts are right, but I can't imagine his own military will, would accept any kind of serious compromise. They're on a roll, aren't they? They think they can, they can win this war. Well, I agree with you. And it's not just that they think they're on a roll. It's that they've suffered grievous loss. Tens of thousands of people have been killed. Millions have fled the country. Roads, bridges, apartment buildings, infrastructure, factories have all been destroyed. The Ukrainians are angry and they should be angry. Atrocities have been committed. So, yeah, would it be easy for Zelensky to begin to have a conversation about a diplomatic endgame? No. Do I think that he could pull it off under the right circumstances? Yes, in part because he has built enormous support. You know, he's turned into a, a, not a rock star, not just at home, but around the world for standing up to, to Russia. I do think it would take frank conversations between the U.S. and the Zelensky government, between NATO and the Zelensky government to say, listen, let's not push our luck. This war has gone well so far. We understand why you believe you have a right. And yes, they do have a right, moral and legal, to kick Russia fully out of Ukraine. But that doesn't mean that it's strategically sound. It doesn't mean that they can do so without risking escalation as well as further loss of, of life and limb. So I think that that uh, what we need is, is at least the beginning of a conversation about ends. So far, it's been all about means. More stingers, more javelins, more artillery, more intelligence. Uh, okay, that's all good and well. Ukraine needs to defend itself. But let's start a conversation about broader war aims and how we bring this war to an end. And again, I'm speaking with Charles Kupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and has spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security and is the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. And he has an article at The Atlantic, Ukraine's Way Out, 
Strategic prudence argues in favour of pocketing successes rather than pressing the fight and running the tantamount risks. But Charles Kupchin, do you think that Putin would give up on the idea of destabilising Ukraine on the cheap? In other words, even if there was an armistice or a ceasefire, would he abandon this ability that he has? Even if you went back to Minsk too, the mechanism in that would give him the ability to control Parliament in Kyiv. So isn't that what his strategy is and always has been? It's obviously gotten out of hand now. But even in a fallback position, even if you went back to giving him what he, the status quo ante, which is Crimea and the line of control in the Donbass without getting both the full oblasts, he still has a naval blockade, which is strangling and making uh, Ukraine a landlocked country that can't import or export. So that's my sense is he's, he's got a lot of levers here, uh, which I can't imagine him giving up. Well, I don't think that Putin is going to give up his levers of power no matter what. You know, and one argument that you hear in, here in Washington is, well, let's defeat Russia. Let's drive it out of all territory that formerly belonged to Ukraine. Because if we do that, we'll teach him a lesson and he'll never do this again. Really? I think that Putin will be a troublemaker no matter how this war ends. That's what he does. That's his brand. And so the idea that if we go further and we drive Russian forces fully out of Donbass and Crimea, he'll behave himself. And if we don't do that, he won't behave himself. I don't, I don't buy that. He's not going to be- behave himself, period. Now, is there a, a, a situation in which a diplomatic end game could contain him? Yes. I mean, let's say that that the Ukrainians continue to do well. They push back Russian efforts to expand the borders of Luhansk and Donetsk. And then you sit down. Part of the conversation is uh, Ukraine needs free access to the sea. Uh, Ukraine needs X, Y, and Z. That's, that's where I think you can get some buy-in from Putin. If his back is up against the wall and he feels he's losing, I think it's less likely that you can get some kind of deal that in the end of the day leaves Ukraine in a, in a, good, in a good solid situation. But bottom line here, Putin's aspirations to reintegrate Ukraine into a Russian sphere of influence are gone for good. He knows that. Now it's a question of trying to bring the war to an end and turning into a de jure agreement what is already a de facto reality. But would the deal-making go beyond just uh, Russia and Ukraine? I mean, we already have Turkey as a a forum, and frankly, I don't see Erdogan as being particularly neutral. Almost all of the super yachts belonging to Russian billionaires and oligarchs are parked in Turkish ports and money's being laundered through Turkey as it is through the Gulf as well. So I would imagine that Putin would want to negotiate with the United States. He's always said that this is really a war against the United States and they portrayed Ukraine as a puppet. So if the negotiations have to be held at that level, would then Putin want to undo Germany's uh, getting off its dependence of Russian oil and maybe try and undo Sweden and Finland joining NATO, which, again, Erdogan appeals to be a spoiler on as well. Well, I mean, Erdogan is a sideshow. Uh, Yeah, I think it was useful to have some conversations in Turkey, Uh, better to have Ukraine and Russia talking than not. But you're right, Ian, that in the end of the day, it's going to require a conversation between the key NATO members, the U.S., Germany, France, with Ukraine and Russia to, uh, to bring this conflict to an end. Uh, I don't think Putin is going to get any wiggle room on Sweden and Finland joining NATO, on Germany and the EU decreasing their dependence on Russian energy. That's going to happen no matter what. But 
I do think that if this war comes to an end through some sort of diplomatic endgame, we're going to be in a better position than if it just ends in a frozen conflict or drags on for years. And the bottom line is that, you know, Russia is still Russia. It's got lots of nuclear weapons. It stretches from Eastern Europe all the way to the Pacific. Uh, we're going to have business to do with Russia on climate change, on arms control, on the Arctic, on the cybersphere. Let's try to end this in a way that preserves at least a measure of pragmatic collaboration with a country that we're going to have to talk to even more so because when this conflict comes to an end, we're going to see Russia more fully in the arms of China. And a Sino-Russian bloc is a force to be reckoned with. But do you think, Charles Gupton, that Putin is in a, in a sort of a longer game, as many have argued? I mean, first of all, the price of oil has gone up into the stratosphere since this in, invasion. And I think the German... Germany and, and Europe are paying him about a billion dollars a day, and that's a total anom anomaly if, you know, a victim is financing the aggressor. And he's, I think he gets about a billion a day from selling oil to India, etc. And there seems to be some kind of de facto alliance between Saudi Arabia, MBS and MBZ, and the Emiratis and Putin with uh, OPEC+. Plus. Are they going to try and wait well, they're making Biden twist in the wind because of inflation driven by the price of oil. Are they going to play a waiting game to bring back Trump? I mean, is is that a dimension here? Well, you know, I don't think that Putin has a strong hand right now. Yes, he is uh, selling energy to Europe, to the Chinese, to others. That provides the revenue needed to keep the country's lights on and to support the war effort. But other than that, Putin really is in a box. Uh, this, this is a war that has simply not gone well, and he knows it. I've never seen so much disaffection in Russia itself. Right? I have high-ranking friends in Moscow who are openly disdainful of this war. We have anchors on state-sponsored TV denouncing the war and resigning. Uh, this, is, this is a big deal. This is shaking Putin's foundation. So I wouldn't exaggerate the, the, the strength that he enjoys. That having been said, uh, you're right, Ian, that even though I don't think time is on Putin's side here, I do worry about the staying power of the West in a couple of different respects. One is we're beginning to see cracks emerge among the transatlantic allies. Italy, France, and Germany are now talking about a ceasefire and a diplomatic endgame. The United States and Britain are talking about winning and backing Ukraine's effort to try to liberate its occupied territory. So some daylight is emerging. And then second, you know, uh, I'm someone who believes that the Democrats are not in great shape politically in part, in large part because of inflation. You know, you go buy bread, eggs, milk, you fill up your car. It's kind of shocking what's been going on in terms of, of uh, the increase in prices. I think this puts Republicans and in particular America first Republicans in pretty good shape heading into the midterms. I would point out that in a very hotly contested Senate primary in Ohio quite recently, J.D. Vance won, supported by Trump. What's his policy on Ukraine? I could care less what happens to Ukraine, right? That's his view. And I do think that uh, the bipartisanship that we have seen emerge on Ukraine is going to wane as we get near the midterms. And you know, we've, we're talking about a $40 billion package of assistance to Ukraine. That's a lot, but I think it's gonna provoke pushback from people in the, in the heartland of America who are saying, I can't afford a tank of gas. Why are we spending 40 billion on defending Ukraine? So just in the last minute, just to touch on, dissent being expressed inside Russia. I watched the uh, 
video of the retired army colonel on on Russia's 60 Minutes program laying out a very, very cogent argument of why they're losing and uh, that the Ukrainians could muster a million-man army and that they're highly motivated and our troops are not motivated and the whole world is against us. And you could see the look of shock on the face of the other participants who, of course, were mouthing the usual propaganda. So there's certainly something happening there. But just to close here because of the OPEC Plus argument that I brought up, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Malinowski, who was a senior figure in the State Department, is now a congressman yes. at the McCain Institute's recent forum, said Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates today are Russia's allies in the Persian Gulf by virtue of laundering Russian money and refusing categorically and deliberately to increase oil production. This is a moment where we need more countries to face a choice. Whose side are you on? Is that something that Biden should lay down a marker on? I mean, who are our allies here? You know, CPAC is having its meeting now in Hungary with Orban, and Orban is clearly a spoiler, and so is Erdogan. I feel this is a moment where we need a little clarity about who our friends are and who our enemies are. Well, I share that sentiment, and I do think that when Russia invades its neighbor in an unprovoked act of aggression and starts slaughtering people in the streets, you ought to see the world come together to oppose it. The reality, however, is the opposite. You are seeing the advanced industrialized democracies come together, but that's about it. The number of countries enforcing sanctions against Russia is somewhere around 41, 42. That means that most of the world is sitting on the fence. And so, no, I don't think that Biden should come out and say, are you with us or are you against us? Are you standing up to Russia or are you not? Why should he not do that? Because I don't think he's going to like the answer. And we've already seen India, Israel, Brazil, South Africa, many other large democracies saying, you know, we don't want to don't want to take sides. We're going to sit on the fence. So that's the world that we live in right now. And it means that I think Biden has to be careful not to draw too fine a distinction between democracies and non-democracies, because we're going to need some non-democracies, nor between those countries willing to stand up to Putin and those not. Final comment here. It is important to keep in mind that the world's major democracies have come together, are standing shoulder to shoulder. They represent more than 50% of global GDP, up to 60%. That's one of the reasons that the West has so effectively unplugged Russia from the global economy. That's one of the reasons Russia is in trouble and losing this war. Charles Kupchin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Been my pleasure. And again, I mean, speaking with Charles Kupchin, who was director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration, is now a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. And he spent the last three years of the Obama administration as special assistant to President Obama for national security and is the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. And he has an article at the Atlantic, Ukraine's Way Out, a strategic prudence argues in favor of pocketing successes rather than pressing the fight and running the tantamount risks. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the results of yesterday's primary races in the key state of Pennsylvania. Since it cost a lot to win and even more to lose, you and me might have spent Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Terry Madonna, who's a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University. He founded the Keystone Poll in 1992, 
the oldest survey produced exclusively in Pennsylvania, and he was also a pollster for the Philadelphia Daily News and many other newspapers and television stations in Pennsylvania. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Terry Madonna. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, just wanted to do uh, an update on where things stand in the Keystone State. Uh, a lot of attention, of course, has been on the races there, particularly a lot of attention, of course, on anybody that Trump has endorsed as a way to test whether Trump controls the Republican Party. And he did have a win in Ohio with J.D. Vance. J.D. Um, Vance, yeah. But did you think he's going to have a win with Mehmet Oz, who seems to be sort of (laughs) neck and neck with Dave McCormick? I'll say, uh, how about this? Uh, We still have uh, thousands of votes to count in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, six or 7,000 alone in Allegheny County, translation, Pittsburgh, the largest city there, and 22,000 mail-in ballots in Lancaster County, where I'm located. And then there are scores and hundreds and hundreds of votes that haven't been counted in the uh, other 65 counties in the state of Pennsylvania. But as we speak right now, Oz is got 31.38% of the vote, and Dave McCormick has 31.26% of the vote. So can it get any closer than that? Uh, And uh, we'll have to see if the mail-in, if the votes that still get counted change the election. But here's the big point. Pennsylvania has an automatic recount should the election be less than, you know, the victor, less than half of 1% of the total. So if the election is within half of 1%, it goes to an automatic recount in my state. And they have until June 7th to complete that recount. And uh, we get a winner. So what happened to the third Republican running in that race, Kathy Barnett. Um, that's, she, a, that's a great question. Yeah, she's an Army veteran, a conservative activist. She was the Republican nominee for a U.S. House seat in uh, the southeastern part of Pennsylvania, down in Delaware County. And uh, she lost that election in 2020. Uh, the fact of the matter is that she rose in the poll largely because she campaigned, imagine this, with the Republican candidate for governor. She's running for the Senate, but she campaigned with the Republican candidate for governor, uh, a, a guy by the name of Doug Mastriano, who easily won the, Democrat, the Republican nomination for governor by 24 percentage points. Now, here's what's strange about this. Uh, Donald J. Trump endorsed Dr. Oz, in the U.S. Senate Republican nomination. Mastriano, who also got the Trump endorsement, campaigned with Kathy Barnett, who did not get the Trump endorsement. So what's happened in Pennsylvania this year is a number of sort of strange events have taken place. And let me add one other element, and this is important. Uh, Kathy Barnett was way behind in the polls. And as she campaigned with Mastriano, picking up support among a lot of working class Republicans who voted for Trump in the 2020 presidential election, as she rose in the polls, she got a lot of press attention, media attention, as well as from her opponents. And they got into aspects of her background, some of which proved to be very controversial. So in the end, even though uh, the top three candidates, uh, Dr. Oz, David McCormick, a hedge fund, former CEO of a hedge fund, and Kathy Barnett were all very close together. Uh, At the moment, Kathy Barnett has about 25 percent of the vote compared to 31 percent for Oz and McCormick. So she certainly lost support. In the, in the final weekend of the Pennsylvania Republican Senate primary election. Well, Sean Hannity on Fox News and others were just slamming her. I mean, she, yeah. she was more, she's more MAGA than Trump is MAGA. <laughs> so 
So yeah, that no, may have driven the numbers down. That yeah, I'm yeah, sure the yeah. voters watch Fox News. So what's Trump's methodology here? It seems like he picked J.D. Vance because he's better known and he, he's better on television. And he certainly seems to have right. picked Oz because he's a television guy. Does Trump operate on ideology or does he operate on, on whether they're telegenic or not? Well, and you mean, yeah, and personality. Uh, uh, Trump has made a statement when he boosted, when he went in out in support of Oz. He didn't, he did endorse Oz, and that that helped Oz a bit in the polls, particularly among the most loyal of Trump supporters. And he spent he, he spent a good time talking about the TV personality, Doctor Oz. And I think there was something about the the the, the fact that. Oz, you know, had a national TV show. He was uh, quite well known by a uh, by a, a lot of folks in our country. I think that was far more important than Oz's positions. In fact, when Oz announced for the Senate post in Pennsylvania, he was not a resident of the state. He was living in New Jersey. He had in-laws who lived here, and he had not resided here. And he, he never held a political office in the state of Pennsylvania. Not not the least he didn't live here. His in-laws did. And so there was a lot of, of argument made against Oz that he was a Hollywood liberal. And his critics would go through the liberal issues on whether it was on, on abortion, on taxes. I could go through, you know, a whole list of things. And that he wasn't a true conservative. But when Trump endorses Oz, he spends more time beating up on uh, the former CEO of the hedge fund, his main rival, uh, a guy named Dave McCormick. And he says he's not MAGA. He's not make America great again. And so what's fascinating about the Trump endorsement, he spends more time beating up on his major opponent than he does boasting about Oz. And that continued to be true throughout the endorsement process. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Terry Madonna, who's a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University. He founded the Keystone Poll in 1992, the oldest survey produced exclusively in Pennsylvania. And he was also a pollster for the Philadelphia Daily News and many other newspapers and television stations in Pennsylvania. So in terms of the working class votes that you just mentioned, that, that Dr. Terry Madonna, does that mean that the Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who clearly won the Democratic nomination beating Representative Connor Lamb, um, right. just, what, a few days before the election, he was hospitalized with a stroke, uh, which is not, certainly not, not a good optic. He's been touted as a sort of a possible new Democrat that's not your sort of slick suit and tie Democrat, uh, but a working class guy wearing a hoodie. Yeah. And he could maybe yeah. win over some of the the white yeah. working class vote that Trump stole from the Democrats. So what's his yeah. health situation? Because that obviously is, is not a good look, even though he seemed like an yeah. interesting candidate. Well, that's a, that's a superb background, by the way. Absolutely superb. So let's talk a little bit about the, uh, about John Fetterman. Uh, John Fetterman, as you accurately point out, is is a very unique personality, and I won't go back and go through you know as- aspects of that. But he did uh, last Friday have have he had a stroke, he had a clot, and he now has a pacemaker. But here's what his campaign did that I thought was very smart. They had a video. They had a video with Fetterman and his wife, which they put out to across the state of Pennsylvania, showing Fetterman looking very good. And he spoke quite well. He didn't seem to have any any uh, mental incapacity. His speech was very good. And so it had very it had, uh, you know, no effect on the outcome of the election. He won uh, about 59 percent of the vote to his closest opponent, uh, Congressman Connor Lamb, who had about 26% of the vote. Uh, now, Fetterman led 
in the polls by more than 30%. So literally, the, the effect of the stroke had no effect on the outcome. But you're on to something very important. The Democrats have been losing working class voters. Uh, these Many of these voters became Democrats during F. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal as a result of the Depression, Great Depression back in the 1930s. And they've been moving away from the Democratic Party. In my state in 2016, Hillary Clinton did not campaign among the working class voters at all. But this year, John Fetterman did. He spent a lot of time in the working class areas of the state wooing and, uh, you know, uh, campaigning among that demographic. And it's obvious that he won a good percentage of them, which the Democrats have not been doing lately as they have been shifting to the Republicans for a variety of reasons. And for all intents and purposes, President Biden endorsed uh, Connor Lamb. He yeah. likened him to his uh, late son, Beau. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, and, you know, when Biden, Biden, when he won, he won my state by about one percentage point, I'll put it this way, by 80,000 votes. He did not win. This is uh, this is then candidate Biden did not win the working class voters in in the old mining in Milltown in Pennsylvania, out in the southwestern part of the state in particular, where iron and coal and steel once predominated and the working class, but many of their ancestors uh, of the working class today worked in those mines and a good many of them work in natural gas production. So uh, Hillary Clinton couldn't find the time or the energy to go out and campaign among them. And she lost Pennsylvania in 2016 uh, to Donald J. Trump. Joe Biden in August of 2020 went out to Western Pennsylvania and said, I'm for fracking, fracking meaning the uh, removal of natural gas from the soil. And he didn't spend much time on it, but he wanted to make it clear that he was for fracking. Uh, but he still lost the working class voters out there. He lost those voters. And that's important. The reason that he won Pennsylvania by about 1%, obviously I'm talking about now President Biden was he won the Philadelphia suburbs where they a decade ago they were heavily Republican and now they're Democratic. He won the four suburban county votes, Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia, four suburban counties by 177,000 votes, which is why he carried the state of Pennsylvania. Well, obviously, the reason we're talking about the state of Pennsylvania is the retirement of GOP Senator Pat Toomey. The Democrats think right. that this is a potential pickup for them. So uh, the one race we haven't touched on is the governor's race. And you mentioned that the Republican uh, Doug Mastriano won. He ran on a total MAGA platform, right? Stop the steal. He's one of these election deniers. And he's going to face off. Democrat Josh Shapiro, who is uh, uh, currently the Attorney General of Pennsylvania. So how yeah. do you see that race? Well, let me start out by saying that there were nine Republican candidates running for governor. Uh, you talked, you mentioned State Senator Doug Mastriano, who had a lead in the polls. Doug Mastriano, of the nine, all of them, to, to a greater or lesser extent, were Trump supporters. So it's not as though of the nine, there was someone who was taking on the Trumpites or take, you know, in this state or taking on uh, the former president himself. Mastriano, as a state senator, led the fight in the state Senate to have an investigation of the 2020 Pennsylvania presidential election, an investigation into the outcome. He believed as Trump said over and over again that he actually won the state of Pennsylvania, but lost it because of widespread corruption. So that is by far what is what Doug Mastriano is most noted for. And his his loyal support comes from the most ardent supporters of of uh, President Trump in the state. So here's what's really important and something that you rarely see. 
the Republican establishment, the political leaders and some business leaders were appalled that Mastriano might win the nomination. And number two, that he couldn't beat the likely, the Democratic nominee, our current attorney general, Josh Shapiro, in the general election in the fall. So they organized something that I've never heard of in my state anyway. He said, they said these leaders, the other candidates, there were eight of them, oh, drop out of the race. Now they couldn't get their name off the ballot. Drop out of the race, drop out of the race and throw your support to Lou Barletta, a former congressman and mayor of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, drop out and support Lou Barletta. Now think about this. They take the individual who's in the lead, who ultimately gets Trump's endorsement and says, don't vote for him. I mean, that's pretty rare. And the establishment Republican establishment deeply upset that Mastriano can't win because he's too far to the right and too committed to the notion that no independent analyst believes that there was mass corruption in the Pennsylvania election in 2020. So that's one of the nightmares that the Republican Party, at least the, yeah. the more traditional side of the Republican Party, have about these MAGA candidates they obviously win the primaries because that's when the MAGA folk come out to vote, but not necessarily in the general. So we'll have to that's sort right. of yeah. watch that one as we get towards November. So just in general, then, when are we going to get final results, do you think, of the, of well, particularly we, with the Oz yeah. race? Right. We have thousands and thousands of votes yet to be counted. And if nobody gets uh, more than a half a per half of 1% lead, then it will go in to this recount. So I'm a little hesitant to say that one candidate will get that and there won't be a recount because of the thousands and thousands of votes that still have to be counted. But if not, then the election will go into a recount and we'll, we'll, we'll at the, at the earliest, we would get the results by June 7. So that's, Quite a ways off. Uh, for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For they have to, do a to be uh, chewing his fingernails. I thank oh, you yeah, for joining right. us, Terry Madonna. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Terry Madonna, who is a senior fellow for political affairs at Millersville University, and he founded the Keystone Poll in 1992, the oldest survey produced exclusively in Pennsylvania. And he was also a pollster for the Philadelphia Daily News and many other newspapers and television stations in Pennsylvania. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring how the Republican Party is in a competition with itself over which candidate is the furthest out on the MAGA fringe in Donald Trump's GOP. All I do is cough and choke from the iron pilings and the sulfur smoke in Pittsburgh. Lord God, Pittsburgh. From the Allegheny to the Ohio in Pittsburgh Allegheny to the Ohio Allegheny to the Ohio They're joining up in the CIO in Pittsburgh Lord God, Pittsburgh Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice, is now a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is The Republican Primaries Are a Tug-of-War Between Right-Wing and Even Right-Wing. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lloyd Green. Thank you. Thank you very much. So... Does this mean this tug of war between the, well, I guess it's tug of war between people in Trump's GOP who want to be more MAGA than the other guy or girl? I mean, this means that the whole party is Trump's party because there, no, there doesn't seem to be any space for it anymore for anybody on the moderate side. Is that a reasonable supposition? There is some space, particularly if they are out of if they're in blue states, um, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, uh, 
Governor Hogan in Maryland. These are Republicans who are in spaces that are either purple or blue. Uh, the governor of Vermont, uh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. You have a whole spate of actually Republican governors in the Northeast. And their sense of their moderation by temperament and by programs can very well make them attractive alternatives. Uh, and that's what you're seeing. So they do have a space. The question is how much beyond uh, that space in the Northeast can they uh, pollinate the party? If you're looking at the tenor of last night's primaries, there is a, they may be facing a ceiling as to where they go or what they do next. But there's definitely a niche. And the question is, how broad is it? Well, in Pennsylvania, of course, Mehmet Oz is almost neck to neck with David McCormick, a former hedge fund guy who Trump has attacked as, a, as a being a China, as you point out, a China-loving globalist. But that didn't stop him from trying to be full-on MAGA, right? At this point, the first piece on being full-on MAGA is an announcement of dedication to personal fealty to Donald Trump. It just, that's the baseline prerequisite. It's less about policy and more about personality and personal embrace. Once you get past that, fissures can open up. Um, Trump is not an orthodox conservative. For him, the biggest issue is himself. Then you, when you move away from that, it becomes U.S. borders, particularly the southern border. You don't hear Trump world talking about the U.S.'s border with Canada. You do hear them talking awful lot about Mexico. Once you're there, though, on those two issues, um, variations are, are, are permitted. And the question is how much variation is permitted by Trump, how much variation um, is permitted by Trump's base. In the case of um, Dr. Oz, Trump was was more drawn to the fact that he was a celebrity um, than any hard policy line. Uh, there was a point in time Dr. Oz was um, pro-choice. That wasn't a disqualifier in Trump's eyes in the same way it wasn't a disqualifier with the Republican base for Donald Trump back in 2016. Once you're willing to say, I will conform to what's demanded, which is in one sense, fairly usual in political parties that are, have grown ever more polarized. Um, there's capacity to say all is forgiven. And I think that's what you're seeing over in the GOP. Um, and at the same time though, there is some deference given to incumbent office holders. You saw that last night um, in Idaho, the Republican governor uh, ended up recapturing the Republican nomination, even from someone who was more MAGA than he was. In Georgia, all the indications are Brian Kemp will win the party's nomination again. Again, that's a governor and that entails, that's a job that entails a certain expertise and capacity to govern, the ability to add up two and two and say it's four, get budgets done on time, build roads, maintain bridges, deal with social, certain uh, social welfare programs. More practical than ideological. Challenge, though, comes up in uh, races for the Senate. And um, over there, that's where ideological conformity uh, counts even more. And again, I'm speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Justice Department, is now a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is The Republican Primaries Are a Tug-of-War Between Right-Wing and Even Right-Wing. But of course, so much of the focus at Lloyd Green is on whether or not Trump is the unassailable kingmaker of the GOP in the case of the lieutenant governor in Idaho who lost, she was endorsed by Trump, and she was way out there on the far right. 
and you mentioned uh, the upcoming Georgia primaries where Trump has thrown his lot behind David Perdue, a former U.S. senator, who is attacking Brian Kemp along with Trump. So um, how did Trump do? I mean, overall, Madison Cawthorn was another one of people Trump endorsed, and he went down uh, in North Carolina. Okay, Madison Cawthorn is, in a sense, in a universal blood. He is a walking hot mess. Um, and that's there's only so much the GOP and so much MAGA voters can take, and yet he ended up, all things considered, ran a decent race, given all the baggage he was carrying. Um, the thing I would look at is Dr. Oz, who is not a native to to a MAGA world coming in and making a very credible run. And he may well actually capture the GOP nomination in Pennsylvania. The thing that they're looking at technically, and because of Donald Trump's endorsement, the technical piece in Pennsylvania is, and I haven't checked in the past few hours, is the count of the remaining mail ballots. The mail ballots that came in early ended up breaking for, um, McCormick by about nine points. Question is what happens to the ballots that come in later? If they're still showing a nine point lead, McCormick does have a very serious chance of winning by a a tiny margin, but he would end up winning. If the rate comes in lower, if instead of 9%, it starts becoming 3%, 4%, he may not have enough ground uh, to make up the difference. And already Trump is telling Dr. Oz, call yourself the winner. Yeah, what's that Which, about, Lloyd? I mean, I, <laughs> you can't just know by exactly fiat make him the about. winner. What is it? <laughs> it's a replay of election night 2020 where Trump wanted to call himself the winner that night. And but for the Fox News, but for Fox News calling Arizona, he would have. And that would have ended up shaping the coverage that was out there. And it would have, he thought it would have shaped, increased the pressure on Fox on his behalf. And it would have put Republican office holders on even greater sense of probation with Trump. What he's telling us to do is do that now. Call yourself the winner. And enough of the GOP within Pennsylvania will fall into line. Will that that deter a, a David McCormick? No. I mean, David McCormick is truly deep-pocketed. Mamadas is, is, is wealthy, but McCormick has even more money at his disposal. And if you're running a hedge fund, I mean, McCormick runs Bridgewater. You don't let things like that deter you. Uh, You just go full bore and you do what you need to do. Um, And I don't think Trump appreciates that. Well, Um, Trump's not everything. He's a a wannabe billionaire. This guy's a real billionaire, right? I don't know his figures, but put it this way. He ran a hard-driving, serious hedge fund. Bridgewater is a dominant force in that industry. It's not something that was handed to him. He built it. And I'll leave it. I'll leave that right there. And so you don't get easily deterred. And he is also, more broadly, I mean, he, his candidacy was a conventional conservative candidacy. He was, it's an open seat in Pennsylvania. Pat Toomey, the incumbent senator, is retiring. Toomey is a former banker in his own right. There's almost, you have that type of vibe within Pennsylvania Republican politics, that being one of the flavors that you can find within the party. Toomey was a banker. Going way back in time, John Hines was the heir to the Hines fortune, Hines ketchup. And he used to be, until his unfortunate passing in a helicopter accident, he was a senator from Pennsylvania. Um, so in that sense, McCormick is more of what you expect from a traditional Republican candidate in Pennsylvania. And you look at where he ran 
where Oz ran poorly. He ran, Oz ran relatively poorly around Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, the major cities. McCormick had better showings in those places. The flip side, though, is over time, the Pennsylvania Republican Party, and, and it's, I, it's the case across the country, but last night it became very clear in Pennsylvania, it has become a much more rurally based party. And that has repercussions as to who can sell to the uh, party faithful and who has a more difficult time selling their candidacy. So, so one we're, of the things, we're running out of time. I just wanted to touch back on Madison Cawthorn. Does that prove that the Republican Party will embrace you, even if you're a crackpot like Marjorie Taylor Greene, full-on QAnon? But the real sin that uh, Madison Cawthorn, the line that he crossed, was talking about, uh, the GOP, in the GOP there was a lot of uh, cocaine consumption and orgies going on. So is that what did him in? It was a combination. I think you're definitely touching on something. It was a combination of he took on the party elders. He trashed the party elders, which folks, Ted Cruz does it. Marjorie Taylor Greene does it. But it was the, t- the types of vices that get you into trouble within the GOP's cultural uh, fabric. And then the other piece is him running around half naked on video. That is not a look that plays well with the Republican Party in particular, in particular, not the Southern Republican Party. And all that came out. He was under a cloud. He had ticked off the establishment within North Carolina. He created his own perfect storm. And in the end, I think his margin in the Republican primary was about three points. So here you have a guy who's done all that stuff, and yet... He's in contention because Donald Trump said, I'm offering you absolution. So you get to see the limits of the power of Trump's endorsement. That's one piece. You get to see the limits of what MAGA world will tolerate. And you also get a chance to see the relative, how much give and take, how much tug, how much fluidity you have um, within uh, the Republican Party, particularly the Republican Party within North Carolina. Well, Lloyd, I thank you for joining us and for your analysis here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to help. And again, I've been speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Justice Department. He's now a contributing writer at The Guardian, and his latest article is The Republican Primaries Are a Tug-of-War Between Right-Wing and Even Right-Wing. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared